church. And if you're joining us at our Timber Grove campus this morning, welcome to y'all as well. We love you. I'm so proud of you and your ninth week of existence today. Story Timber Grove, we're behind you 100%. We're so thankful for all that God's doing. Also, if you're joining us in our online campus, no matter where you are in the world, if you're joining us online right now, you're part of the story online, and we're so glad that you're here in spirit. We are one church, no matter where you are. A church is not defined by the building, and uh, the church is the people. So we've been reminded of that more than ever in the past year. So God is good, and no matter where you're tuning in from, we're so glad you're here. You can check in in the comments section of whatever platform you're watching on. Just say hi and let us know how you're doing. All right, so my name is Eric. I'm the lead pastor here at The Story, and today's a very special day. It's always special when we get to be together in the room or uh, joining online, wherever we worship God together. It's always good. Today's a little extra special. All right, you know why? This week, Story Church is celebrating our sixth birthday. So we are six years old. I know. I know. Man, I look at the pictures of our launch day six years ago, and I think, I look a lot younger than just six years younger <laughs> in those. I look, I look older than I should. I don't know what y'all have done to me, but no, no, it's all good, y'all. It's all good. I'm so, so blessed to be the pastor of this community. I do not deserve the, the blessings that I get every day by being in, uh, in community with all of you and leading this church. And I know God's just getting started as he's taken us already from one campus to three, and we just continue to see new things happening. And it's a beautiful thing to be in community together, even in a year like the one we've had, especially in a year like the one we've had. And so happy birthday, Story Church. You are now, I don't know, a kindergartner or something. You're six. So <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm so, so thrilled. Um, so if you're here for the first time, extra special welcome to you. And I just kind of want to introduce the next part of the service, all right? You've probably been to churches before and you have sermons and stuff, and that's kind of what we're about to do. It might feel a little bit different today because we're halfway through this series of messages where we're basically going through and digging deeper into this book that I wrote that was released earlier this month, okay? So I wanna explain the book just a little bit. This is Scripture and the Skeptic. It's a little book, it's uh, eight chapters long. And if you're here in house, they're, they're in the lobby. If you wanna get one, that's great, I'd be so grateful. But I wrote this book for a purpose and it wasn't like a money-making thing. No author writes to make money. <laughs> <laughs> anymore. Thank you, Amazon. Uh, but, but that's not the reason I wrote this book. I wrote this book because I have walked deep in doubt where the Bible is concerned. I know what it's like to doubt every page of scripture. I know what it's like to open this book called the Bible and expect to find something to disagree with, something to hate. And, and then Jesus found me, not by my own doing, but by his own grace and, and redeemed me and and showed me the true way of understanding scripture that leads to life. And I want everybody to know this, um, that, that the, the Bible is the true eternal word of God. And it is written for you as a love letter to you from God who loves you, no matter what you've done or not done. And, and I'm just so passionate about everyone knowing that. So that's why I wrote the book. It's eight chapters long based on eight questions. So we've talked one question at a time. Um, so, you know, isn't the Bible only human was part one. Is the Bible fact or fiction was part two. Are the gospels reliable was part three. Today, part four is what is the Bible about? So the, another way of saying this would be like your English teacher used to in reading comprehension class. What is the main idea? What's the thesis? Ever since we were little, we were taught to identify the thesis of whatever we're reading. And we should do the same with the Bible. 
One of my concerns about this, the, the way the Bible is talked about in culture today is that I'm hearing people suggest that the main idea of the Bible is something other than what it really is. I hear people suggest that the Bible is about religion first. And there's religious stuff in the Bible, but it's not about religion. I hear that some people say, well, the Bible is about fear and control and manipulation. And I suppose if you cherry pick the right verses, you could say that there's parts of it that support your belief. Some people are so angry about the Bible or about Christians that they'll go so far as to say the Bible is harmful. The Bible is pro-slavery. The Bible's anti-women, homophobic, etc. And you might be able to, to cherry pick here and there and back up your point, but you cannot make a case for the whole theme of the Bible being those things. There's only one theme that stands out and that's summed up in the three-word verse from 1 John, this obscure letter at the end of the New Testament. And these three words are, God is love. And aside from another three-word phrase, Christ is risen, God is love is probably the most revolutionary three words you'll ever hear. The most astounding three-word phrase in the Bible, again, aside from Christ is risen. So when we talk about God is love, we're not just saying God has love or he feels love. Um, we're saying it's who he is. And, and especially in terms of ancient religions, even if you're a skeptic, you've got to acknowledge this is different. I mean, compared to what other ancient religions said about their gods and what qualities defined their character, none of them said their God is love. This is the only one. So what do we do with this? Even if you're going to stay on the fence as far as Christianity goes or church attendance and all that, I'm not trying to make church members with this series. I just want to open some, some eyes and open some hearts where the Bible is concerned. You've got to come to terms with the fact that the thesis statement of this book might well be God is love. And if you're a human being, that resonates with you. No matter where you are on the religious spectrum, if you belong to another religion or no religion at all, if you're angry at Christians, if you're the deepest sort of doubtful skeptic, like you still resonate with love. And I want to talk a little bit about why that is. Have you ever wondered why love is so ubiquitous in our culture, in every culture, throughout all of humankind? Human beings have craved this thing called love We've wanted to love and to be loved. Why is this such a universal truth? Even hard-hearted cynics and skeptics want love. And this seems to be something that is pervasive in the human DNA, in our hardwiring. And I think it's worth asking why and what we do with that reality. And sometimes I'll get skeptics going, well, you know, what we call love is just it's just uh, you know, evolution, uh, evolutionary tactics sort of to, to propagate the species. And what we call love is really just you know, reproduction or, or whatever, but I'm not so sure that's the case. Other times skeptics will say, well, not everyone feels love. Only good people love, bad people hate, good people love. Hey, I would say every single person is hardwired for love, even unloving people. It's not that they're not hardwired for love. They just look for love in all the wrong ways. And they, they're twisted in their, in their way of going about love. And obviously the counter argument is Hitler. What about Hitler? Hitler's not loving. You can't say it's a universal human experience if you've got Adolf Hitler to account for. Okay, do I believe Hitler was a loving person? Not really. 
Do I believe he was hardwired for love and wanted love and lived for the affection and affirmation of others? Absolutely, a thousand percent. He was just twisted up in terms of what love meant to him by the time he was an adult. (laughs) The family physician of the Hitler family once said that he's never seen anyone love someone else the way Hitler loved his mama. Now, Hitler's relationship with his dad was a little different, if you know the story. His dad was kind of a brutal character. His dad was not a nice man. Um, You know, his dad was known to be abusive, kind of a womanizer, dismissive. Young Adolf wanted to be an artist. Did you know that? 12, 13-year-old Adolf wanted to go to art school and learn to be an artist, and his dad slapped him around and told him only degenerates become artists. And I've often wondered over the years, just in my own mind, I don't say this out loud very often, but how many lives could Mr. Hitler have saved if he just found within him the strength to say, one time, nice painting, son. Like, (laughs) I'm proud of you, son. I love you. Even if you're an artist, I love you. What a difference that might have made in that young man's life. But no, the rest is history. He grew up and was dominated by fear and subjugation of others, but even that was rooted in some perverted kind of love. We see this all the time, y'all. Think about the music we hear on the radio or online. Like the the, uh, recent study came out, the Psychology of Music Journal came out, and, and, uh, and they had studied all the top 40 billboard charts across all musical genres since 1960 to the present day, and they found that 67% of all the most popular songs in all the genres, 67% are love songs. And, and another like 30% or so would be defined as like sex and sexual desire songs, which, you know, the Bible still suggests is a form of God-given love. Now, Obviously, listen to the radio long enough, you know that things have gotten twisted up. Things have gotten mangled. Like any Cardi B fans in the house, not everything you hear about love on the radio or on the podcast or wherever is going to speak about real love. But that doesn't mean that not everyone wants real love. It just means sin has got a hold of us. Sin has entangled us and mixed up within us what love really is. But so many of our songs, by a wide majority, our songs are all love songs. And the same holds true for our movies. I mean, we all want love so bad, we keep making the same movies over and over again. Movies about love. All the greatest movies, all the greatest stories we're telling on the big screen are love stories. What's the greatest movie of all time? Anyone? Wrong. Dark Knight. The Dark Knight is the greatest movie of all time, and some might say it's a superhero flick. Some might say, you know, it's about Batman. It's not about Batman. It's about a boy who loved a girl. And and it just so happened that that boy was a billionaire orphan with a cool suit and chip on his shoulder. Um, But he was Batman, okay? But but it was still just a boy in love with a girl who would do anything for her, right? I hear arguments every Christmas about Die Hard. Is Die Hard a thriller action movie or is it a Christmas movie? (laughs) Die Hard's a love story. This man faced Hans Gruber to get his wife back. All right, he would do anything to get his estranged wife back to have his family again because he loved them. And if I asked you what the greatest love story of all time is in terms of movies, many of you would say Titanic, obviously Titanic's love story. Titanic is also known as a story about an unsinkable ship that sank. And really though, it's about two kids that fell in love on that boat before it went down. A boy named Jack poor boy named Jack from the lower deck who fell in love with a girl 
named um, Rose, Kate Winslet. And Kate Winslet and Jack were in love, and Jack would do anything to save Kate Winslet because he loved her. And Kate Winslet would do almost anything <laughs> to save Jack, except scooch over a little bit. Uh, so he didn't freeze in the Atlantic. But nevertheless, I'll never forgive her for that. But nevertheless, it's a love story and it made hundreds of billions, probably dollars. Like it made a lot of money because people seek love the same as we always have. We want the love stories. We want true love. And so we chase it. We pay for it. We look for it. We long for it. Now, as much as ever, even though our culture is, is, is changing, right? So, so we see it in our music, we see it in our movies, e even though some of the, the images of love that we see in those places are not, are not truly true love. Right? They're, they're sin-tainted, they're twisted. Well, what I want to say about the Bible is the same is true when you read the Bible. So the Bible speaks of the God who is love and who makes human beings in his image. And when God, through his Holy Spirit, sanctifies us and perfects us one sweet day, we too will be love because we're made in his image, right? But for now, it's twisted and messed up and mangled and tangled by sin. And so when you read the Bible, expect to come across examples of human beings made in God's image who claim to be good, claim to be loving, but clearly fall far short of some objective, perfect kind of love. And the problem for newcomers to the Bible, if you're new to the Bible and you open the book and you read for yourself, you come across some really shady business happening in the Bible and you're like, I thought my Christian friends, Pastor Eric told me this book was about love and now this craziness is happening. I'll never forget a conversation I had with a young woman in her late 20s. She was just starting to come to the story and I thought she was on board, y'all. She just kind of had the Christian girl look about her. I can't describe it. I thought she was in. Turns out she was not. She had far more questions than answers when it came to God and the Bible and Christians. She said, Pastor Eric, I'm just struggling. I'm not sure I can keep, keep this up. And I was encouraging her to keep coming around and asking questions. And I tried to get her to be specific. What specifically is bothering you about all this stuff you're hearing about Christianity, stuff you're hearing at church? She said, well, I started reading the Bible for myself and I came across King David. She said, Pastor Eric, I just can't even. And then I said, you can't even what? And, <laughs> and she said, I just can't even with the Bible. And instead of picking that fight, grammar, you know, she was missing a verb. But I, I decided, because I'm a Christian, I'm just going to talk about her point, right? Which is, she's struggling with Scripture because of King David. Okay, tell me more. What is it about King David that's keeping you from believing in the truth of the Bible? And she's like, he's a jerk. King David is in the Bible, and he's a jerk. Did you see what he did to Bathsheba? Basically, assault, it's coercion, it's using your power to overcome and claim someone who is not yours. She was already married. And so was David, someone else, right? So, so you have all this seediness in a, a supposed hero of the Bible narrative. And it was throwing her. She was shook about it. She could not reconcile the idea that the Bible is perfect and good and loving. We've got somebody like David doing this stuff. And so I said, look, we can talk about what David did. That's fair. Let's talk about it. But what I am failing to see is why 
David's failures are causing you to lose trust in the Bible. Saying you hate the Bible because of King David would be like saying you hate Harry Potter because of Uncle Vernon. Like, Uncle Vernon is in the story, and yes, he's a jerk, but it's not his story. Do you see that? It's not his story, and the Bible is not King David's story. And here's what I want to say today is that the amazing, the most amazing thing just about about the Bible is that even though it contains 66 different books written by over 40 different authors over 1,500 years time on three continents in three languages and in nine different literary genres, even though it is so diverse, the Bible tells one story about one God and it has one main theme. The Bible has one character from cover to cover who appears start to finish, and it's not David or Paul or anybody else you struggle with in the Bible. It's not any of those guys. The only character who's there from start to finish is God. It's because the Bible is the story of God. And any of these other figures that pop up, these mere mortals, they are just supporting actors in the story. You should read them as such. Their sin causes God to have to respond. And the storyline is what God does. And just like there's one character throughout, there's one theme throughout. And as I said before, it's not religion or fear, coercion or manipulation. It is love. Love is the big idea. So here's the tricky part. We are living in a culture enamored with love, obviously. That should go without saying. Our culture enamored with love universally. And we claim to have a book that says God, the supreme being, the lawgiver of the universe is love. We claim to have the best love story ever told in the, in the Bible. So why is the Bible less popular than ever in our American culture today? Well, this could be a sermon all unto itself, but I just want to, I'll oversimplify and just say, basically, non-Christians don't believe us about the Bible. We are not a credible source. And we Christians shouldn't fight that. We shouldn't say, but what about? We shouldn't say, but they. We should just own the fact that too often people who we want to read the Bible are actually reading us. And if they don't see love in us, why should they expect to see love on pages of scripture? The great preacher D.L. Moody said it this way, he said, out of, out of 100 men, one might read the Bible, but 99 will read the Christian. And so we have to own this and repent of all the ways that our lives, our words, our politics, everything have failed to reflect the true agape love of God, right? We are his witnesses in the world. So uh, this is a quote from my book, from chapter four of my book that I'll share with you now along these same lines where I wrote, Make no mistake, people have said and done some awful things with Bibles in their hands. I've witnessed outspoken believers publicly demeaning women, condemning gays, shaming skeptics, and trolling liberals on social media. We've all watched politicians manipulate the Bible and the people who love it for their own political ends. Some Christians have a way of making the greatest love story ever told seem wholly unloving. 
I know this was the, this kind of thing was the fuel in my tank when I wasn't a believer, when I was a skeptic. This is what, this is what I got up in the morning to fight against, the hypocrisy I perceived among Christians. I'm in an interracial marriage, and we were in Louisiana. Nothing against Louisiana. It's not the easiest place to be in an interracial marriage sometimes. Or it wasn't in 1999 when we got married. <laughs> yeah, I'm old, so whatever. So I, we'd married at 15. All right, so did I mention Louisiana? Anyway, so the... <laughs> Getting off, off track. So all I'm saying is uh, when you have enough evidence that the people holding Bibles don't have love in their hearts and love is what you want, then you'll look elsewhere. And if you, if you come to a point in your life where you stop believing that God really is love, but you're still hardwired for love, what do we expect non-Christians to do? They're naturally going to create pathways to love on their own, apart from the Bible. They're naturally going to come up with their own definitions according to their own preferences, desires, standards, etc. cetera. And, and, and that is to be expected, right? That, that is actually what's happening in the world right now. In the absence of faith in the God who is love, people will will propose an alternate theory. Maybe God isn't love, but maybe love is God. And y'all, that's what, that's what I see right now in the wider culture is that we have raised generations of people who believe in love. They, they believe that love is God rather than the Christian God being love. And as I said earlier, some of that is, is on us. Somebody recently gave me this book as a gift. Um, I think, I, I don't know if they're joking with me or not, but I, I'm, I'm not the cheesiest person, and this is a very cheesy book, so I think, I think it might have been a little bit of a joke. Um, these are just love quotes. There's one after the other, love quotes, hundreds of different love quotes. None of them are from the Bible, though, which is interesting. I mean, a book that claims to be all about love uh, doesn't include anything from the Bible. It's another Another reason to believe that many in our culture are giving up on scripture, that's not the point of me sharing this book though. What I, what I was blown away by is that I was given this book and I was just sitting around reading it. And I, w- I was blown away by the fact that I kept running into things that I agree with in here, all right? So I kept running into things like uh, love with all your heart in here. I'm like, yeah, amen. I think I like this book. You know, love can change the world. I read at one point, I'm like, absolutely, hallelujah. Love can change the world. But, but then I kept getting into some, some weirder territory. The, the more that I read, the less sense the book started to make. It almost felt like the, the, the people were reaching for some definitions, like, like one, I still like this one, but I just, it didn't quite resonate as much. One person said, a life without love is like a year without summer. And I'm like, you're not from Houston, are you? You know, <laughs> but I, I still, I like where your head's at. I'm vibing. I, I got you. So life without love is like a year without, okay. But it just got weird after that. The next one said, a caress is better than a career. A caress is better than a career. And I'm a father now, so... Um, I just wanted to put some qualifiers on that one, you know? I was like, okay, maybe. 
unless, <laughs> like, I want to know who's caressing you and do they have a career? You know what I mean? Like, one of you needs to have a career. Like, maybe, maybe a caress is, but I, I see what you mean, but I'm not sure I can agree. Another one said, true love doesn't really come to you. It has to be inside of you. And I'm like, I'm cringing a little there. That's Julia Roberts who said that. I'm not really sure she gets it. I don't think she knows exactly what, what love is because some, sometimes love absolutely comes to us. I mean, that's one of the core tenets as Christians. Anyway, it got worse after that. At the end of the book, it just seems like really bad advice. So you get through all the good stuff, some of the nonsensical stuff, and then some just really weird stuff. Only do what your heart tells you. Yeesh. I don't know about y'all. My heart tells me a lot of things every day that are not good for me or other people. Things that I have to say no to if I'm going to be a man of love, a man of God, right? So uh, I don't know. The Bible says not to trust your heart. This book said absolutely trust your heart. Where's the truth, all right? And then finally, I came across this one, which I felt was the summation of the whole book. This one said, keep calm and Love whomever you want. And I felt like this was like the, the drumbeat of our culture today. For better or for worse, right? I, I'm not saying that judgmentally. I just hear this sentiment everywhere right now. This is like the mantra of our, our pro-tolerance, pro-love American culture today. The main idea of modern culture today is this Everyone should be allowed to love whomever they want. All right, so generations of young Americans are being raised with this. And I gotta be honest, I get it. Like, it sounds good. Of course, everyone should be free to love whoever they want. But can you sit with that for just long enough and think critically long enough to see the other side of that coin and how ugly this could get? You see it? It took me a second to see it. But I see that if this becomes my mantra for life, keep calm and love whomever I want, then it is a license not to love whomever I don't want to love. Which means eventually follow this logic long enough and you'll end up in a place where really it's merit-based. Loving whoever you want is just loving the people you deem lovable. It's loving the people who benefit you, loving the people who love you, loving the people who would not harm you or question you or vote against you. But but if you come across someone who does hold you accountable and does ask questions that you don't like and does make you uncomfortable or inconvenience you or someone who can't give you anything in return for your precious love, then you have a right not to love them because it doesn't benefit you. Do you know what a quick road that is to a living hell? You know how quickly that mantra becomes you're the only one who really deserves love and eventually not even you do because of shame that creeps in. I've been there too and it's dark. And so this mantra that seems good really at the end of the day doesn't really look that good at all. And we can see how it's already seeping into our culture and infecting us all. 
But you don't have to look any further than the election year we just survived. The, the, the filthy, toxic politics of our land throughout. And if, one of, if you're like, yep, they, that other side of the aisle really is toxic. Like, I'm talking to you. Like, it's all of us, man. We're torn apart by the kind of mantra that says, love whoever you want. But anyone you don't want, forget them. And so we have this two-party system that is just so constructive and helpful, right? No, not really, because we have one party that claims to be the party of Christian values. And I don't know, the more I listen, not just to the content of the platform, but to the tone of some of the leaders, it seems like the biggest applause lines are the ones that seem the least loving, especially to those who are hurting the most, refugees and immigrants and folks that are in need. Like, like I know your, your policy doesn't have to be any certain way, but like, do you... Does your heart break when somebody hurts? Christian party, does your heart break? Let your heart break. Otherwise, you look worse than hypocritical. You look hateful. And on the other side, you got this other party that I've been a part of for most of my life. I'm not anymore. I'm a registered independent now. But for most of my adult life, I've been a part of the other party, the tolerance party, the party of love, which is absolutely a a loving party until... (laughs) until you have the nerve to step out of the party line and question some of the dear tenets of the platform. You have the nerve to question merits of abortion on demand, or you have the nerve to question the merits of, um, you know, some of the other conversations. I'm even scared to talk about them, right? Because I don't, I don't want y'all to cancel me. But I, I love you. I was just saying, if you get out of line, they'll have your head. They'll, they'll crucify you. So the the tolerance only goes so far until they realize you're actually against them and and then it's all out the window. You're not to be loved anymore. It's really sad to watch. And I think maybe the saddest thing I've seen in the world is how many people I care about who are just through politics or through sexual relationships or through social media or through work and success, they're just trying to find love. And everywhere they look leaves them empty. And it's devastating when you love people to watch that happen. I heard one guy one time say that even the man who knocks at the brothel door is looking for God. He's looking for love. Even when we're most broken and most pathetic and most toxic and angry. We still are hardwired by the God who loves us, the God who is love. And so what do we do? How should we, if you're a Christian, maybe you are, maybe you're not, but if you are, what should your response be? While living in a world that is defining love for itself in ways that fall short of the love of God, Well, it's good to know the differences, right? So this world, this definition of love says, love anyone you want. And the agape, perfect love of God has no patience for loving anyone you want. God says, love everyone. Not just anyone, everyone. You know, the the definitions you'll hear of love in this world are, are reliant on your goodness. Love because you're a good person who loves people. The love of God is different. It does not rely on your goodness. It is not dependent 
on you being along for the ride. The love of God loves you the same when you love back and when you don't. So we truly are talking about a supernatural kind of love that is different and distinct from what the world often means when it says we should love. However, as Christians, as we watch people go from one thing to the next, as we shake our heads or wag our fingers at people who hate our God or people who we disagree with vehemently on whatever political issue of the day, as we just look at them in judgment, what are we hoping to accomplish? Instead of looking down our noses at people who are different from us politically or socially or whatever, theologically, what if we just saw children of God who don't know their father yet, people who are just longing for real love, real connection like any of us are, but they failed to find it, at least in part because of some of the walls and barriers we Christians put up with our self-righteousness. What if we just stopped for a moment and said, I'm sorry? What if instead of beating people over the head with our own righteousness, we recognized our own need for repentance? And before telling someone else how wrong they are, we realize how wrong we've been. What if we changed our posture instead of expecting them to? My hunch is, and I've seen from experience, we would see more lives turn to Jesus that way. The people we're so busy criticizing are longing for the same love we are. Christians, listen. We can love better. We can love more like God. But here's the deal. It's not because you have that love within you already. It's because the love of God can teach you. The Holy Spirit can sanctify you. Jesus can show you how to love the unlovable. The more you worship him and keep him at the center of your life, the more you'll find yourself worshiping beyond what you thought possible. Worshiping beyond your capacity. Worshiping and loving supernaturally. So I know it's, it's been a rough year. This is February 28th. If I asked you where you were last February 28th, just conceive of that, how much the world has changed. Y'all are all wearing these weird masks now, and there's not very many of you here compared to where we were a year ago. You know, gathering is such a weird thing now. We've just been, man, it's, we've just been kicked in the teeth time after time after time, and many of you are beat down, demoralized. And when your reserves are low emotionally, you, you start to love a little less. And I would encourage you today to rely less on your feelings and more on the grace of God. Because no matter what's happened since last February 28th to this one, he loved you the same on February 28th of 2020 that he does today. He loves you the same if you're a million dollars richer or if you're bankrupt. He loves you the same if you're successful and your mama's proud of you, or if you're you know, a nobody in the world's eyes and your mama hasn't called in years, God loves you the same. And there is nothing you can do about it. There's nothing you can do to make him love you any more. There's nothing you can do to make him love you any less. His love is forever and his love is true. 
And his love, I dare say, is what you've always been looking for. And the love story the Bible tells is the one you've always been searching for. In every book you've read, in every movie you've watched, in every song you've heard, it's always been in search of what's right here in the word of God. The eternal God who made you in his image, the God who is love. We'll just ask right now that we have a time of prayer, all right? We're going to have a little time of reflection. And I want you to close your eyes if you're at home. and Close your eyes if you're here at Timber Grove as well. Close your eyes if you're, if you're watching on your phone and you're driving. Don't close your eyes. Everyone else, close your eyes and just, just spend just a moment in honest reflection about the possibility that the supreme being, almighty God, that his nature, his essence, is love. Let's pray. God, when Moses asked you who you were, you said the Lord. abounding in steadfast love. The Lord slow to anger. When Nicodemus asked you, Jesus, who you are, you said, for God so loved the world. When your servant Paul wrote of of love to the church in Corinth, almost 2000 years ago, we had no idea we'd be quoting him in every wedding, everywhere across the land. But here we are remembering that love is patient and kind and that it never fails. And that these three things remain, faith and hope and love, but the greatest of these three is love. Right now we reflect on your love in Jesus. And honestly, we ask ourselves right now, would you have taken the cross, Jesus, if you loved like we do? Would you have gone to Calvary if you loved whoever you wanted to? Would you have forgiven the soldiers who put the nails through your hands and feet if you loved selectively? Would you forgive us if you loved based on your feelings in a moment or no? Your love is not based on a moment or on the feelings of the day, but on your truest essence. Your love is not based on our merit, but on your grace. Right now for every soul in this room and online and at Timber Grove, I pray for the humility to stop and consider this love, to consider the possibility that maybe what we've been searching for all along in our quest to love and be loved Maybe it's you, Father. For even when we had done nothing to deserve your love, even when we had accomplished nothing, you sent your son to die for us. It's there that we see your love the most. For while we were still sinners, while we were still sinners, enemies of you, loved us. You laid down your life. You made peace with us and call us friends. 
Show us how to love this way, Father. May it start at home, but may it overflow from our homes into the streets of our city, across the street to our neighbors, across town to our fellow Houstonians, across the world to those in need. Lord, may we love as we've been loved unconditionally, freely, completely. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.